Okay, we don't think the remote control works. It doesn't. That's okay. We'll make it work. Y'all come on in. I know it's uh, running a little behind. If you need a, a lesson, raise your hand and Mark Craver or someone else will walk some down. Um, Mark or whoever's walking down. Marcus, we need some down here in the front. Butler's holding up his hand and Corbo and some others. Anybody else need a lesson? Make yourselves at home. Get comfortable. We uh, are going to look at Philippians this morning. For those of you who may be visiting, this is a class that uh, uh, we've put together called Biblical Literacy, where we're just trying to become literate about the Bible. And so we started with the book of Genesis in the Old Testament, and we're working all of the way through it. And we're actually closing in on the finish line. Uh, We don't have uh, 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 too many books left, uh, but we are in the New Testament epistles at this point. And so we finished the book of Hebrews last week, and this week we're going to look at Philippians. Now, to look at Philippians, okay, I'm going to wait till like everybody has a chance to get seated. So let's see, how can I bore you for a minute? Did you hear the one about the lawyer who was in? No. (laughs) Um, Okay, that's good enough. All right, we're in Philippians. Where last we were, Paul was in Rome. We were studying the book of Acts, and the book of Acts ended with Paul and his friends in Rome. We can place the year somewhere around 59 or so of the current era. And Paul and his uh, uh, compatriots are in Rome where Paul is under house arrest. Now, Paul had spent time in jail cells. His time in Rome was not spent in a jail cell. He was allowed to rent a home but he was kept in chains and he was still kept under guard even though he was in his own home uh, at the time. And Paul was there for two years. This is the last verse out of the book of Acts. And the last verse out of the book of Acts reads, For two whole years Paul stayed there in Rome, in his own rented house, and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what Paul's doing uh, uh, as we we reach the end of of, uh, Acts. In the process, I'm going to trip over this at some point. In the process of Paul doing it, Paul wrote a number of epistles or letters while he was there. Paul wrote the letter to the, uh, um, these are called prison epistles because Paul wrote them while in in, uh, uh, under arrest, house arrest in Rome. Paul wrote the letter to the church at Ephesus that we call Ephesians. Paul wrote the letter to the church at Philippi, which we call Philippians. He also wrote the letter to the church at Colossae, which we call Colossians. Then he wrote a real little letter to a fellow named Philemon. And we'll reach that in a little while. Um, These are the letters uh, by a little while, probably three or four weeks, maybe five. These are the letters Paul wrote. Now, to orient ourselves, we're going to borrow a photograph from NASA. And uh, this is, uh, um, if we could dim the lights a little bit. This is the Middle East. You've got the Mediterranean Sea. The boot over there on the top left is Italy with Sicily, the little thing off the toe of the boot. That's where we get Sicilian pizza from. It's a pretty good thing. Then the next dip down, that's Greece. And then we've got Turkey over here, not where we get Turkey from. Um, But uh, it's there nonetheless. Rome is right up just inland there in the middle, uh, uh, just 
There it looks like there's a cold front just north of Rome with the clouds coming down, if we were weathermen. Athens is over here on the port in the top right corner of the box would be the Athens area uh, in Greece. We've got Turkey over there. Now Philippi, where Paul is writing, is about 10 miles inland up there in what was called Macedonia at the time. Philippi, you'll recall, was named after Philip. Oh, are these optional remote controls? Huh. This could be interesting. See if this does any magic. Yeah, I just popped it forward. into the USB. Let's pull it back. There's a laser pointer. There you go. How about this? We have the technology. It's identifying my keyboard. Wonder what my keyboard's name is. Eh. Thanks, Gary. I'll <laughs> just keep going. Okay. So. We've got um, these folks there. Now, Philippi, if you recall, was named after the king of Macedon who was like Alexander the Great's dad, King Philip. And uh, it was a town that, that he named, named after him, but it ultimately got named after a few other guys too. Um, this is the road that, you, that is in the condition it is today. It's called the Via Ignatia, which means uh, uh, the Ignatius Road. And it's the actual Roman road that went through the heart of downtown Philippi. Uh, Philippi was a famous city. The ruins aren't all that great today. Actually, on this side of the picture is a pretty good amphitheater that's still there. But Philippi was a town that was a Roman town at this point. It had been where uh, um, uh, Julius Caesar was killed by Brutus and Cassius, right? And Marcus, Anthony, and Augustus, whatever his name was, uh, went out and they had the big battle to see who was going to, to win uh, right outside Philippi. And so it also carried Julius Caesar's name somewhere in it and Augustus's name somewhere in it. But we just call it Philippi today. And um, um, Philippi itself is about a mile away from uh, a, a river that's got a little stream. It's called the Gangites River. And, and it's got a, streams that, a stream that diverts off of it. And that's where Paul first preached about Jesus Christ when he went to Philippi off by this stream. Usually when Paul went into towns, he would go to the Jewish synagogue because Paul was a trained rabbi. And Paul would teach at the synagogue, but they did not have a synagogue at Philippi. The odds are that means they did not have 10 Jewish males there because under Jewish law it took 10 Jewish males to maintain a synagogue. So Paul went there and not having a, a 10 males, Paul went on a Sabbath to pray out by the river, and that's where he found Lydia and some others holding a Sabbath service, Lydia, of course, being a female. Um, Paul is there. Paul converts a number of the, the both Jews and Gentiles to the Christian faith while he's there. All of this is recorded in Acts about chapter 16, I believe. And uh, 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 Paul then gets put into jail because of the fuss that's being created over his Christian, Christian proselytizing. It is while Paul and Silas are in jail in Philippi, you'll recall, that there was an earthquake in the middle of the night while they were singing hymns to God. And uh, uh, in the midst of the earthquake, the doors break open. Paul and Silas did not escape, nor did anyone else. The jailer in Philippi realizing the gates have bust open, is about to kill himself because he will be murdered or killed himself as a penalty for letting 
prisoners escape. Evidently, there's no uh, uh, earthquakes are not a defense under Roman law. If you're a jailer and you let prisoners escape, you yourself die. And so uh, 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 the jailer's about to kill himself, and Paul says, Hey, time out. We didn't leave. We didn't cost you your life. The jailer says, Wait a minute. You stayed. You're a prisoner. You stayed in when the doors open. You could run. Paul says, Yeah, we're not going to get you in trouble. And Paul comes out to the Philippian jailer, and the Philippian jailer says, What is it about you that's so different? And Paul explains to the Philippian jailer how God had made a difference in his life through Jesus Christ. And the Philippian jailer and all of his family become Christians. Now that's a story that we remember from the book of Acts that we need to hold on to because I think Paul puts some humor in the Philippian letter knowing that the jailer and his family and others who clearly know that story that would have been a galvanizing story. It just happened, you know, seven or so years earlier. Um, That story is well known around the Philippian church. And so it's interesting to look at the way Paul writes Philippians, keeping that in mind. What are the themes of the book of Philippians? First theme, it's a missionary report. The Philippians themselves are giving missionary support to Paul and had been for some time. They're sending him money. They're sending him a helper, Epaphroditus, they sent to Paul so that Epaphroditus could do some things for Paul that Paul, imprisoned under house arrest, couldn't do for himself. And so part of this is just Paul reporting back, saying, thanks, I got the support, and here's what's going on, and here are the fruits of the effort, and, and this is your missionary report. In addition to that, there's a great theme of joy in the book. Paul uses the word joy, or a form of it, 16 times in four little chapters. And uh, joy is something, uh, in fact, some people call Philippians the, the book or the letter of joy. In addition to joy, there's some great talk in here and passages about humility, um, uh, which uh, are important. And finally, uh, another theme in here is living a life free of worry. So, aside from the missionary report, if you want some joy, you need some humility, or you got a lot of worries, this is a book for you. And uh, let's go through it. The outline, uh, and this is kind of sketchy, but basically you've got the basics of a letter and the missionary report for the first 26 verses. And then after that, Paul's exhorting the Philippians to do some good things and, and how to live their life. Paul talks to them about some plans he has, sending Timothy back to them soon and sending Epaphroditus back probably with the letter itself. Remember, no postal system then. And then uh, Paul gives them some warnings about how they need to live with some more exhortations and has some concluding thoughts. We'll follow that basic form as we go through it. Starting out with the letter basics. Paul writes the letter and and says, and time out. I got a problem with this letter I got to tell you about. Um, I know one of our guests this morning is a fellow named Elon, and he's sitting here on the second row. And he is, like a number of people in here, of Jewish heritage. Um, and I asked him, I said, you ever been to a Southern Baptist church before? And he said, hey, I don't think I've ever been to a church before. So um, uh, y'all uh, uh, don't be mean to him, okay? <laughs> We're going to be nice. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, if, if we <clears throat> remember the way letters were written at the time. Oh, I was telling you my problem. So, Ilan. We have um, like lots of different translations of the Bible. Everybody wants to take a stab at doing it their own way. 
There are some also of the Tanakh, the Hebrew scriptures, different translations, but not nearly as many different ones as we've got in Christianity. So when I was growing up as a kid, I decided I wanted to memorize big volumes of the Bible. It's a good thing, Sterling, to do when you're a kid. Just say, I'm going to start memorizing this stuff, okay? So I decided to memorize the book of Philippians. thought that was a good place to start. And I memorized it in the New American Standard Version, which I told y'all in this class I'd teach out of the NIV. So I'm like, I, I struggle with this class because I've got it in my brain in a different version than I've put on the overhead. So I'm going to try and keep in New International Version, but if I start quoting it differently, don't label me a heretic, just know I'm talking New American Standard Translation instead of the New International Version. Does that make sense? Okay, so in the New American Standard Version, the way this letter starts out is Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to, because that's who it's from, to the saints in Christ Jesus who were in Philippi, including the elders and the deacons. And then he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he starts out here, he says, I thank my God in my every remembrance of you or every time I pray for you. Let's get this fixed before we get too far. I thank my God in my every remembrance of you, every time I pray for you. I always pray with joy in my every prayer for you because, he says two reasons. First of all, the way you've helped and supported me in the gospel. Because of the way you've been helping me. See, you, I'm doing mission work and you've been sending me help. And it, I thank God for that. And i got to tell you, there are a bunch of you who help me. And I thank God for it. I'm not always really good. You know, uh, Mark sent me some cookies. I got some pickles this morning. I got a treasure I'm not allowed to open yet. I got prayers. I got emails. I got all this stuff that come to me. And I don't always have a chance to say thank you to you. But nothing like that happens without me saying, God, thank you for such dear friends, for the encouragement and the help and support. And it's important to write a thank you note to people. And that's good etiquette. And that's, that's very important. But I want to go you a step further. When you write your thank you notes, or when you don't, take time under your breath to say thank you to God and to bless someone with God. And just say, you know, God, thank you for Mike Miori. Mike, Mike Miori. Yeah, him too. But Mike Moriarty and, and the hug around the neck he gives me and the encouragement and support. Take time and develop a thankful attitude for those who are helping you. Paul says, I thank my God and I always remember you with joy because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. And then Paul goes a step further. He says, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. And here's what Paul's saying. Like a sculptor sculpts the head. Here we stole the head of Aphrodite. Like a sculpture, an artist starts, and you get this big chunk of granite or marble, and you start chiseling away. God has started working in you. And God's not an artist who starts his work and then sets it down. I'm wonderful at starting projects. I have serious trouble ending projects. Lewis has something Lewis calls garage syndrome. <laughs> if you've seen Lewis's garage, you would understand it. Lewis has such a yearning and an urging to have his garage meticulously organized and structured. And periodically, he'll go in there to tackle the beast. 
And the beast is huge. And he doesn't get far with the beast before the beast tackles him. And he just walks away in frustration sometimes. I'm that way with a lot of things. There are a lot of projects I'm really, really good at starting. But I'm not always good at getting them across the finish line. I like to spin plates. And I can spin it, but then I'll see another plate over here that needs spinning, so I'll leave that one and I'll go over here to spin this one. Then I'll say, all right, that's running good, and spin this one. And instead of just finishing, if I've got all the plates spinning really good, you know what I do? Right, time for another plate. Pull one out, let's spin this one. Okay. And, and what Paul is saying is Paul has confidence as he prays for them that God started a work in them, but God doesn't, fin God doesn't stop until he's done. And this is an assurance all of us have, that God at work in us does not quit halfway through the job. He brings it to fruition. So if I'm talking to, to Gary's kids or if I'm talking to some of the younger people, you got to know that God starts working in you when you say to him, here I am, use me, work with me. And he doesn't end until he takes you home. And some people that happens early in their life. Some people live longer lives than others. But God's still at work in everybody. And we have confidence that he'll complete it. And that Paul says. And so Paul says, recognizing that, Paul prays for the Philippians. And here's his prayer. His prayer is that their love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. It's a wonderful prayer. That's something we need to be praying for our children and for each other. It is my prayer that your love, first of all, that you have love. I'm telling you, we've really got to work on this. Christianity, especially evangelical Christianity, is famous the world over for being harsh and judgmental and critical. And that should not be the label we wear. We need to be famous world over for loving and caring for people. That's what we need to be about. And, and Paul says, I'm praying that your love may abound, but not some sappy, superficial, ooey-gooey love. Paul wants the love to abound in knowledge and in depth of insight, where we love out of conviction and understanding. And Paul goes a step further. I don't have it up here, but he says, in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern or figure out what's best. So you may be pure and blameless until Jesus comes again. And that's his prayer for them, and that needs to be our prayer for each other. Now, in the process of this, Paul's also giving his missionary report. So he says, now, you all know that I'm locked up. <clears throat> but what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, it's at this point, if I'm the Philippian jailer and his family, I'm kind of chuckling. Yeah, Paul can get locked up. And imprisoning Paul certainly can serve to advance the gospel. Because I remember when I had him locked up. And that's how I came to know Jesus. And Paul is saying, it's no different here in Rome. I'm still under lock and key, but it has become clear to the entire palace guard. Everybody that comes to guard me knows that I'm in chains not because I did something wrong. I'm not in chains because I'm a murderer. I'm not in chains because I'm a rapist. I'm not in chains because I'm a thief. I'm in chains because I serve Jesus Christ and call him Lord. 
And Paul says that's become apparent to everyone. So the whole palace guard knows it. Everybody else knows it. And the bottom line is, as a result, Christ is getting preached. People are talking about it. People in Rome are talking about it. Hey, have you heard about Paul? Yeah, bless his heart. He's been in house arrest now for a year. All because he won't uh, let go of his faith in Jesus. Now, some people are preaching and talking about it in positive manners. Other are doing it in kind of a little envy and rivalry. Yeah, we're out here free, but, you know, Paul, he's locked up. <clears throat> we're able to serve God and we're able to do it freely. Paul, I don't know what he did wrong, but, uh, you know, he's locked up. And, and, and Paul recognizes this. He says some are declaring about Christ out of envy and out of rivalry, others out of goodwill. But the bottom line, with me being locked up and people knowing it, Christ is being preached. And he actually says this. He says, whether they're preaching it out of envy and rivalry or whether they're preaching it out of good year, what does it matter? The important thing is Christ is being preached. So he says, and I'm happy with that. And frankly, I expect to be released and I expect to come back and see you. Maybe I won't. I've thought about it. I could die here. If I die here, it's not a bad thing because to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I'm kind of torn between the two. In verse 21, he says, I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary that I stay here for you. And so I'm going to stick around until my work's done. Just as God's not done doing his work with Paul, God's not done using Paul to do the work on earth that God had set up for Paul. So while Paul could say, it's actually better for me in the end when I die, I'm still sticking around because I'm here for you and that's what I need to be here. So that's kind of his early missionary report. And with that, we move on to a, a period of exhortations. And I've, I've interrupted it Chapter 127 through 218, then there's this little timeout where he talks about sending Timothy and Epaphroditus, but he picks back up with some exhortations and warnings, so we're kind of combining them. Now, here is your question this morning as we look at the exhortations, and we use them to exhort each other. First of all, how many of you, and you don't have to raise your hand, but in your brain, think about this. How many of you from Jesus Christ or from your relationship with God, or the dwelling of the Spirit, how many of you have experienced in your life some encouragement? Think about it. Have you been encouraged by your faith? And he says, by the same token, if any of you have been encouraged from being united with Christ, if any of you have ever had any comfort from His love, have you ever been comforted by the love of Christ? No one, you know, the, the, you know when, when Dad passed away last year, uh, when Castell and Lorraine went through their tragedies with their folks. You know, there, there's a certain comfort you get knowing uh, 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 the love that God has for you. Um, have you ever had any f just rich fellowship, either with the Holy Spirit or with someone else from the Holy Spirit? Paul says, if you've ever had any encouragement, ever had the comfort, ever had any fellowship, ever had any tenderness, ever had any compassion, he says, I want you to make my joy complete. If you've ever had any of that, here's what I'd like you to do. Make my joy complete by being like-minded. Okay? Y'all be like-minded. Sing the same song. Be on the same page. Be like-minded. Not only be like-minded, but here's, that, that's the easier part in a, in a sense. 
Here's the harder part. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Let's pause. Do nothing out of selfish, for me, ambition, where I want to be. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of vain conceit. Oh, where you stick your chest out. You wear your good humor suit. I didn't wear the bow tie. Um, do nothing out of vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Consider others better than yourselves. This is really hard for us to do in America because we got brought up in the competitive, capitalistic society where we still live and thrive today. I look out, I see Ron Hickman. He has to run for office all the time. Okay? That's a, that's a struggle. I, I, I look in the mirror in the morning when I don't shave. I'm in court. I'm fighting against the bad guys. And I'm supposed to do things in humility considering others better than myself. And yet in court, I've been told all my life that you have to show self-confidence and show that you're the center. Right? So you sit there and you try to struggle through that. And then you get on a baseball team or your kid's on a baseball team and you're supposed to be, we heard the sermon this morning, modeling for our children to consider others. But, you know, and how does all of that work in a society where we've been taught to be the best and to beat everybody else? But that's the instruction and that's the struggle. And so if I were going to teach this, I would say, uh, if I were writing like Paul, I would say go to the satellite photos of that hurricane that just wreaked so much havoc. And consider how awesome, that's the Yucatan Peninsula, how awesome and powerful that is. On the Yucatan Peninsula are hundreds of thousands and millions of little bitty people. They're so small you can't see them. And some of them on that Yucatan Peninsula, right now when this photo is being taken, are really full of themselves and thinking they're pretty incredible people. But I can't even see them. But in their own world and in their own sphere, they're feeling pretty powerful. They're nothing compared to the storm. Or I would go to Psalm 8, where the psalmist writes, King David writes, When I consider the heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you've created, what's man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? And I'd go to the Hubble telescope, and I'd look at some pictures it's taken of some galaxies out in the world, out in the universe. And to think that that exists out in space. And on this little dirt clod orbiting around our sun we call Earth, with 8 billion people, we exist. And I'd say, you know, don't get too big for your britches. Or I had a preacher growing up that said, never start thinking you're something on a stick. You know? I'm not sure what that meant. But I've really tried to spend the rest of my life not thinking I'm something on a stick. I'd look at, you know, the nebula and the beauties that God's created. Now, Paul doesn't use that. Paul's not using a PowerPoint and he doesn't have the photos. Instead, Paul quotes from a hymn that probably was already there. It doesn't look like Paul wrote the hymn. Scholars have pretty good arguments that it was already there. And Paul quotes from it. And this is maybe the most profound passage, uh, uh, one of the most profound passages in the Bible. So it's worth putting up here. 
Paul says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who, and, and here's where I have trouble because I've memorized it in the New American Standard, so you're going to have to humor me. You know, you can read it or you can listen or you can try and do both, but I don't have this in that version in my brain. Who, being in the form of God, morphe is the Greek word, the, the, the very essence, the very nature of God, who being in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Now, here's, here's, let me pause for a minute and make sure we're on this. Jesus Christ is in very essence God. Christians adhere to, to uh, uh, the Shema in, in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. But the Christian concept is within the oneness of God are different facets of God or aspects of God, which are hard to understand. And one aspect of God is what we call Jesus Christ, who even though he's in essence God, he humbled himself and emptied himself because God's very nature is not a getter. God is not about getting. God is about giving. And so being in nature God... Jesus gives of himself. He humbles himself by taking on the form of a man. God becomes man and dwells among us. God comes down in human form. And the bizarre thing is, is if that's not the most incredible humiliation in the world or, or emptying, God goes a step further. Creator God, who becomes man, goes a step further and humbles himself to other men, to other created ones all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross, which was the most uh, uh, distasteful, uh, uh, pathetic, uh, 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 poor rep reputation, uh, sorriest way to die. And that's what God became. And the scripture says, though, therefore also God highly exalted Jesus and bestowed upon the Jesus the name that's above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul doesn't go to the heavens or to the storms. Paul says, don't start thinking you're better than anyone else. Have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had, who even though he's God himself, would give of himself to see others get. And that's the attitude we're to have. And we're to work this out. God's working in us. And as a result, we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean we work to get saved. That's not the Christian understanding. It's the understanding that God's at work in us. Here's the picture. You work out your salvation just like you're working dough. Okay? You're just kneading the dough. Because God's inside you. And so it's that kind of a working. It's not a work to get saved. It's not a work to please God. It's, it's, you know, need what you got. Work through the fact that God's in you. And do it seriously. In the process, he says, do everything without complaining or arguing. Don't be little crybabies. Do everything without complaining or arguing. So you may become blameless and pure and you shine like stars. You look so different than the rest of the world when you're that way. Right? 
Lewis, I, you know, this is the problem. You sit up in the front, you get called on, okay? Someday we're going to, like, turn everyone around. I'm going to sit in the back. I'm going to call on you all. But Lewis, I look at Lewis. He's got people that come into his office, and he's there for them to, to he wants them to complain. And, and maybe. <laughs> I don't know. But, and I've never talked to him about this, but I'll bet you money that one thing that would help a lot of folks who need help and come to him for counsel is if we could learn to quit being complainers and so argumentative. When I was in ninth grade, I graduated from ninth grade, if we didn't call it that. I got out, we called ninth grade junior high when I was there. Now it's like high school, but I got out of junior high and we had a last will and testament. And our classmates picked out what it was about each of us that was going to be in there. And I left my, quote, natural argumentative ability, close quote, <laughs> some kid. Um, I didn't really leave it. I kept it. <laughs> Elon's been in court with me for the last three weeks. He'll tell you, I didn't leave my argumentative ability. I, I, man, it's there. I've bred it. It's having babies. <laughs> my argumentative ability has argumentative abilities. But I don't want to be an arguing person in my life. I want to shine like a star. I want instead to rejoice. I want to be happy. I'll say it again. Rejoice, Paul says. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say it. Rejoice. Let your patience be known to all men, for the Lord is near. That's the way we're supposed to be. We're not supposed to be complainers and arguers. We're supposed to be rejoicers who are patient. So in the midst of travails and problems, we patiently rejoice. Why are you rejoicing? You an idiot? No, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. I can rejoice. I know the last page of the book. I know where we're headed. And I know what's going on. Now, in the process of this, Paul warns the Philippians against two different kinds of problems they might have that kind of are extremes. One is a legalist warning. The legalist warning is the idea, you know, legal means law, right? There was still a lot of teaching, especially uh, uh, inherent in folks who had the, the Jewish upbringing at the time, which Paul had. There is a lot of of idea that you satisfy God based only on how good you are. And if you want to be pleasing to God, you got to jump through all the right hoops to do it. And Paul says to him, he says, look, that's not the way you need to be trying to live God. That's not what's pleasing to God. I've got the stud resume, Paul says. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised on the right day at the right time. I had the right bris. I learned Hebrew. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. As to the law, I was perfect. I was keeping the law. I was doing it all. I was trained by the top rabbi in Jerusalem. I have the best stud sheet that nobody's going to match if you want to talk about just living pure Torah righteousness. He says, but I count all of that as garbage or rubbish when I compare it to having a righteousness that's been given to me by God through Jesus Christ. 
When I compare what I could do on my own to what God has done for me, when He sacrificed Himself for me, I count all of my stud sheet as garbage. I'm not standing before God because of how good I am. I'm standing before God because He has accepted me in spite of my shortcomings through the sacrifice of His Son. And so He says, "What I, I want to know this. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of His resurrection. I want the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. I haven't obtained this perfection yet. I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect in God's eyes. I'm not perfect in your eyes. I'm not perfect in anybody's eyes. I'm not there. But I want to tell you one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind, I press on toward the goal Forgetting what lies behind, I press on toward the goal of the upward calling of Jesus Christ. Bob Dylan's got a great song. You can't understand it. But I read the lyrics called Pressing On. I think it was on his Saved album. He says, I'm pressing on. Yes, I'm pressing on. Oh, I'm pressing on to the higher calling of my Lord. And, and he took the lyrics straight here out of Philippians. That's what Paul says. I'm pressing on. I haven't arrived yet, but I am not living in the past. I'm climbing forward to the higher calling of my Lord. Now, having said that to the legalist, the people who think you've got to jump through the hoops, now he addresses the opposite, the antinomians. Nomos is the Greek word for law. So anti means against. These are the people who are just kind of... Yeehaw! Doesn't matter. Do whatever on earth we want to do. Because, hey, we're saved. You know? I'm married. Think I'll get married again. I thought that'd be big of me. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> that's a good one. The old bigamy joke. Um, you know, hey, uh, uh, you know, yeah, you're not supposed to lie, but it's easier. Might as well. Doesn't matter. I'm saved by grace. I don't have to jump through hoops anymore. It's a little lie. Didn't hurt anybody. Ah, okay, that may be out of my budget, but who gives a rip? You know, the guy this morning talked about putting your family first. And I need to do that a lot of times, but today's going to be about me. There are all sorts of ways where we, eh, it doesn't matter. And Paul says, eh, eh. He says, uh-uh. That's not what you need to be. These are people who are enemies of the cross of Christ. This is why Christ had to die, is because of sin. These are people whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame. He says, don't be this way. Then he says, what you need to do again is rejoice. Rejoice. Stole that from the music club. It's probably copyrighted, so I need to at least say that, even though that doesn't legally make it right. It didn't say copyright. But if you have the album, um, I stole it. Let your gentleness be known to all men, he says. He says, and, and don't be worried about anything. How many of us feel like her? I got the weight of the world on my shoulders. I'm trying the first Vioxx case in the country. If I win, it's going to really help make things right for a lot of people. If I lose, 
Aside from the absolute embarrassment and humiliation because people like Elon are writing it from the press and I get to read about, oh yeah, the guy we've been reading about for the last four weeks is a loser. Put your L up. If I lose, <laughs> if I lose, it also means something for so many other cases. And so I sit there and I don't sleep at night and I work and I work and I work and I try to figure out all of the angles and I try to figure and I just feel... Ah, oh. and then I start preparing for my Sunday school lesson and I'm reminded of the verse I memorized when I was just a little older than Sterling. Be worried or anxious in nothing. Be worried in nothing. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, and petition or supplication in the New American Standard Version with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Don't be worried. That's not your load to carry, and it's not my load to carry. Our job is to take another step, and then take another step, and then take another step. And as we're doing it, we pray, God, would you please take care of things? And we're given the assurance that the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Our place in the world is in a peaceful, tranquil setting. It's not holding the world upon our shoulders. Set that load down and give it to someone who can carry it. That's God. Okay. Then Paul says, as he's getting close to closing, you want the God of peace with you? He's just mentioned, now this is a little twist here. He just said, um, uh, you know, don't be worried, but set your things down before God with thanksgiving. And the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds. Now he says, do you want the God of peace with you? If you do, then let your mind dwell on these things. Whatever's true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. Think of these things and the God of peace will be with you. I can remember times in my life, starting when I was memorizing this passage as a 15-year-old boy or 14, I don't remember my age, thinking, oh, I need some peace. I need some peace. And I thought, wait a minute, I have a promise. I need to be thinking about things that are true. Of course, I memorized it in the New American Standard, and that was true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute. I need something that, all right, I don't even know what those words are. So I'm just going to do it. Right now, I'm just going to take time, and I'm going to think of something that's true. What's true? Well, the easiest thing for me always was to think about Jesus, because he said, I am the way and the truth. So Jesus is true. What's honorable? What's noble? What's... What's something that, that's worthy of admiration and respect? Maybe it's somebody you know. Maybe it's some deed you've read of. Maybe it's something you know in the Bible. But I'm going to think about that. What's right? What is something that's right? What is something that's pure? What is something that's lovely? You think of those things and the God of peace will be with you. Now the world wants to distract you. It wants you to be thinking of other things. Don't. Make a mental decision. Think of those things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul ends Philippians with a couple of final notes of encouragement to them and a final prayer. 
But this is what his letter's about. It's a letter of joy. It's a wonderful letter. And I'd urge you to spend time in it. Next week, the goal is to look at Ephesians. Here are your points for home. Mine too. Our points for home. Number one, God will finish his work in us. He hadn't given up. Hadn't given up on us. Hadn't given up on our children. Hadn't given up on our spouses. God will finish his work in you. And of that, we can share Paul's confidence. Rejoice always. Be patient. Don't get too uptight. God's in control. You hadn't found a thing yet he can't handle. Live in humility. I want to tell you, I truly believe every person out there, every person out there has things to offer God that I don't have to offer. Abilities that I don't have. Good personality traits that I don't share. How dare I ever think that I'm greater than anybody in this room? Because I'm not. There's not a person that doesn't bring something to the table that, that I don't. And I respect you for it. And I honor you for it. And we don't ever need to start thinking we're something on a stick. Because we're not, whatever that means. Don't be a complainer. Let's just don't. Let's just make a decision. I'm not going to be a complainer. I'm going to quit complaining. I got complainers around me that I complain about. <laughs> I'm just going to quit. Press on. Jesus is in front of you. Doesn't matter what's happened in your life. You haven't done anything so atrocious. God's not forgiving it. Does not matter how you've messed stuff up. Doesn't matter if you're on plan A or plan B. RC, or like me, triple Z. God's still got a plan. And you start right here and you press on and you trust God when you do it. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for the honor and, and pleasure of coming together today to just join with our friends and family and, and have a chance to spend some time learning uh, ways you've been teaching for centuries in a letter that Paul wrote and uh, uh, through the inspiration of your spirit, Father. And I pray that you'll minister to us, make it real to us, and change who we are, Father. It is my earnest prayer that people will see the way we live our lives and say, they're different. I wonder why. And that we'll be able to show them or tell them or let them know some way, or you will let them know some way, that it's because of you, that you make a difference. And we don't just go to church, and we don't just have a religion, and we don't just call ourselves something, but we're in a relationship with the almighty God of the universe who has put his hand into our lives and is painting a canvas. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.